Thank you so much um, for having me. It's wonderful to be here. And um, I brought Susie with me, uh, our youth pastor, and uh, we've already feel blessed in that little huddle prayer thing. It's like you're just on fire, aren't you? It's fantastic. Um, yes, it is wonderful to be here. Um, a bit about me, um, Ben said a little, but I'm um, yeah, married to Tom. We've been married for... I think it's 30-something years now, so that's quite a long time, isn't it? We've done well. Yeah. Uh, we've got four amazing daughters, and we've got three grandchildren as well now. And we've also fostered for the last 10 years. But my last daughter is about to leave home. The dog recently left home. That's a long story in itself, but he was 47, so it was time he moved on. And, um, and basically, I'm, I think, what's known as an empty nester. Or coming up to that, I know, I know. So I've decided I really deserve a well-earned midlife crisis. So I'm working on it. I'm trying to think, what does that look like? I've got the tattoo. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, I'm very proud of that. So, uh, yes, yeah, so watch this space. Who knows what might happen? Anyway, um, this morning, I want to talk about being a compassionate people and really encouraged by some of the kind of words that um, we've heard already this morning. And... Um, some time ago now, I was chatting to a, a guy, and he was telling me of an experience he'd had. He'd just come out of prison, and he'd gone to his local church. He'd, he'd met Jesus in prison, and he wanted to kind of get stuck into church. And he went to the service, and as he was leaving the service, um, he shook the hand of the vicar, as you do in certain churches. And, um, and he explained to the vicar he'd come out of prison and wanted to settle in church. And the vicar said, oh, no, 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 we don't want people like you in our church. More recently, a few weeks ago, um, a few of us, Susie and I and a few others, we met with a bunch of people uh, from the transgender community. And um, we had got to know one or two of them already, and we just decided to spend a day and an evening just listening to their stories, getting to know them, having some time together. And it was incredible, uh, an incredible experience to hear what lies beneath people's often behaviors and lifestyles and just the, the, um, the brokenness. But the thing that really impacted us was how they'd been rejected by the church. You know, not by Jesus. And one of them said, you know, many of us have walked away from church with no intention of ever going back. Yet the desire to search and find the real God runs really, really deep in us. And I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. And then again, quite recently, meeting um, a refugee, he was housed, but at this particular point, he was talking about when he was destitute. And he, he talked about just having absolutely nothing, waking up cold, hungry, not knowing where your food's going to come from, your stomach feeling empty, but actually you were more worried about where you were going to sleep that night. That became the priority. You know, he then part of his story was he was eventually housed, he got a house, and uh, within hours of moving into the house, he had all his windows smashed, and that kind of went on again and again. Years of feeling like lonely, isolated, and abused. And I don't know about you, but these are the kind of people I want in the church. I want uh, the church to be a place that people can feel accepted and loved and can encounter Jesus just through being part of a community like this. I love what it says in James 2. I don't know if you, it comes up on the screens. It's from the New International Reader's Version, hence why I'm not actually reading it from my Bible. But it says this, James 2, 2. My brothers and sisters, you are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So treat everyone the same. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And suppose a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in. Would you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes? Would you say, here's a good seat for you? 
Would you say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet? If you would, aren't you treating some people better than others? Aren't you like judges who have evil thoughts? My dear brothers and sisters, listen to me. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world's eyes to be rich in faith? Hasn't he chosen them to receive the kingdom? Hasn't he promised it to those who love him? But you have disrespected poor people. Aren't rich people taking advantage of you? Aren't they dragging you into court? Aren't they speaking evil things against the worthy name of Jesus? Remember, you belong to him. The royal law is found in scripture. It says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you really keep this law, you are doing what is right. But you sin if you don't treat everyone the same. Those who have not shown mercy will not receive mercy when they are judged. To show mercy is better than to judge. And I can read that and think, oh, yeah, completely, yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm on board with it. You know, but in reality, it's actually quite hard to put into practice. Coming alongside people who are different to us, we don't understand, we don't know. It's easier to ignore the needs or allow our emotions not to be impacted before we actually get to know names or see faces or hear stories. And then they begin to see and touch uh, for ourselves. I think once we do that, it changes everything. I know um, I was saying Tom and I fostered for the last 10 years, and that's a story in itself. But I remember after having our first child placed with us for only four months, and it was such hard work. And I thought, we've done our bit now, never, ever again. And I was thinking, no, that, that's it. But then every time we'd get like um, the email that would describe another child, you'd suddenly like get a picture, a sense of a, a young person in need, and you'd hear the story. And it was then like, of course we have to do something, I can't not. So like over 10 years, we've had 17 young people, all because I've heard the story or I've seen the face. And then it's like, we have to do something. And I love that that passage in James, you know, James is one of those kind of direct to the point kind of leaders. And I like that about him. You know, the book of James, it's a great read, partly because it's short, which is great for someone like me who doesn't read a lot. But also, he just gets us activated and passionate. You know, I love what one of the guys had a word earlier about, you know, just get on and do it. And that's what he, that's what he says. The whole book is about him just um, really encouraging us to get out and do something. It really contains a call to action, a plea to faith that demonstrates itself, not just in words, but in a lifestyle. And I love that. You know, pity cries, compassion acts. And it's a big challenge here, I think, all of this, particularly as the church, as we want it to be a place where people feel welcomed and connected. It shouldn't, um, you know, it shouldn't be exclusive. It should always be inclusive. So I've got four questions I want to ask us this morning. Where are we at in all of this personally? What is the call that we have? Is there a cost? And then how, as a church, shall we respond? So where are we at? Well, I really believe a lot of this kind of compassion stuff, it has to start with us. It has to be out of an overflow of our hearts. And this came into sharp focus for me recently. I arrived home one day, a busy day at work, a bit tired, a bit grumpy, hungry, all of that. Uh, I got my shopping bags, I'd just been to Tesco or whatever. And I arrived and over the front, outside our front door, our, our lovely neighbours had chucked rubbish all over. There were sweet wrappers and condoms and I mean honestly it was disgusting anyway I walked up to the door and I was like livid and I started thinking oh, I hate my neighbors how can I get rid of them they're such a pain and on and on it went and I thought you know I just want to chuck everything back over anyway I was chuntering away to myself as you do well as I did anyway I got in the house and grumbling away and I was 
thinking all these plans of how I could get my own back, which is terrible, isn't it? Anyway, that's just reality. Anyway, a few hours later, um, Tom came in, and I was like, oh, Tom, you know, have you seen all that stuff out the front? And blah, blah. He went, yeah, I have, yeah, I saw it. He said, to be honest, I just threw it all back over. So I was like, oh, so I actually thought I'd been quite restrained. But, you know, but the truth is, I actually knew they deserve my compassion. I know the background, I know the history, I know what's going on. And it's not that, you know, we shouldn't challenge people sometimes. Of course, we have to be able to say to people like, you know, with my neighbours, do you mind not doing that or whatever? But actually, they did deserve my compassion. And I realised how on the inside, how quickly I can feel irritated, frustrated and completely discompassionate. And really, that revealed the state of my heart. It really did. You know, compassion is meant to be the, the ability to understand the emotional state of another person or even oneself with the added element of having the desire to alleviate or reduce the suffering of another you know, it has to be like something we feel, an emotion we feel in our gut that then propels us into action. And, you know, clearly I'd lost the, lost the plot on this one. And I'm meant to be Mrs. Compassionate. You know, I like lead all the compassion ministries at our church. So, anyway. Um, but how often, without realising it, we look at others and we do make a judgment. We maybe judge their level of brokenness in what we see or hear or smell. You know, a bit like the vicar uh, with, the, with the prisoner. And I think, why, why do we do that? You know, is it to validate ourselves, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? Is it to somehow diminish our brokenness that maybe we have in our own lives? I don't know. But I think it's really easy, and, and maybe as Christians particularly, I don't know again, that, you know, we feel we have to kind of present this image of being, you know, strong and spiritually together. And it kind of like, um, it has a hold on us. We feel guilty if we don't measure up, you know, and we forget that actually we are just human and frail. We're not any better or any less. We're just, you know, we're all equals. I remember, you know, a very personal experience for me a few years ago, and uh, I had a season of feeling really quite depressed, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, but I'm a leader in the church, and I was feeling kind of uh, lower and lower, and just thinking, oh, I don't know how to manage this. I'm, I'm like, I've, I've got Jesus, I should be positive. And I found that I wanted to be, uh, kind of hide away a bit, and like, thinking, no, I need to be really strong. And I remember, like, eventually thinking, I've got to go to the doctor. I feel, I feel rubbish. And I remember going to the doctor, and even with a doctor who looked about 12, so I thought, oh, crumb, she's not going to understand. You know, and I, and I kind of went with all these physical, like, oh, well, I'm just, you know, feeling a bit, you know, this and aches and pains, whatever it was. And then, actually, she was so lovely to me. I just said, well, actually, I feel rubbish. Anyway, um, she gave me the magic happy pills, as I call them, and, um, and actually feel, feel loads better. But it just struck me how everything in me wanted to hide. Well, actually, we should be a community where we can be honest and open. So now I say to everyone, oh, I'm on my happy pills and I feel great. And, it, and it's amazing. As we're more vulnerable and authentic in what we talk about, how that really does engage other people, as well as make us more compassionate. And I just think it gives us a right then to enter into other people's lives. Because actually behind all of us here, if we were to all take a turn of saying what lies beneath, what's going on in our lives, we'd all have a story to tell. And there'll be some great stories, but there's probably a lot of pain in the room as well and difficulty and frustration and loss and trauma and all kinds of other things and I just would love to think the church is a place where people can come and just be honest and open and then as other people come to the door with maybe bigger or different needs we kind of like can identify in some way and embrace them and address that. I think so often we can go through life not getting in touch with our own brokenness and denying our feelings and excusing our behaviours because of that and yet be quick to have opinions on others. You know, the church community needs to be a place where we can be real and authentic with each other, encourage each other, build each other up.
The uh, Apostle Paul, he struggles with God not answering his prayers and removing the thorn from his side. But nevertheless, he thanks God for his brokenness, knowing that without it, he would have been arrogant, conceited and full of his own abilities. He learned, as we all must, that Christ's power is made perfect when we are weak. So what is your brokenness? What are you struggling with right now? What are the temptations you're feeling? What are you self-medicating with? And is this a place that you think, no, I can talk to someone, I can come alongside someone? And for some of us, it's about actually being self-compassionate. You know, sometimes we have to just acknowledge that we are not perfect, but actually don't be so hard on ourselves. A woman called Anna Quidlin, who's a, an author and a journalist, said, the thing that is really hard and really amazing is giving up on being perfect and beginning the work of becoming yourself. So it really does start with us. Where are you at in the whole kind of um, your, the overflow of your heart? So what is the call? Well, the ultimate expression of God's compassion was to send Jesus. He came to save and to serve. And as followers of Jesus, we are absolutely called to be like him and be like, do likewise. He's our inspiration, our model, our example. And Jesus' ministry was filled with acts of compassion. It was always his starting point. When we read the Gospels, they tell of Jesus and his great compassion for mankind. We see that Jesus was deeply moved in his inner being time and time again as he met the needs of people around him. I often think, you know, how did he do it? You know, in Isaiah 53, the prophet foretold what the life of Jesus would look like. And Jesus did not come into this world to live a comfortable, secure, safe, royal life. Far from it. The life he lived was difficult at best. He grew up and lived and died in poverty. He was a refugee, often homeless, hungry, betrayed by his closest friends, suffered great losses, jeered at, spat at. When he died, his worldly effects consisted of just the clothes on his back. Jesus knew about loneliness. He was despised, he was hated, he was rejected. Jesus knew the feeling of pain. He knew what it felt like. As a result, he was able to enter into our hurts with us as he does today. He's able to feel our pain and respond. And I love that Jesus felt the needs of all classes and all kinds of people. He feels compassion for the lost. In Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He feels compassion for sinners. You know, the beautiful story that many of you know of the woman who was caught in adultery. You know, the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day stood her up, you know, wanting to humiliate her and wanting to, to stone her and kill her. And Jesus' response was one of gentleness and compassion and suggested to the crowd that if anyone of them was without sin, to throw the first stone. It said in John 8, verse 9, that this, those who heard, began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left, with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Now go now and leave your life of sin. He feels compassion for the sick and suffering. And again, so many examples in the Bible, I won't get into all of those now, of, you know, Jesus healing people. He feels compassion for the seeking. You know, the story of Zacchaeus, the kind of corrupt businessman, the tax collector, up in the tree. Jesus notices, sees him, calls him down, has tea with him. His life's, you know, never the same again. Yet Jesus knew all their faults. 
but he didn't let that get in the way of his compassion and expression of his love for them. He didn't look just on the surface. He knew what lie, lays beneath. And he loved them. He just loves people. And it can be so easy to base our evaluation on a person of what we see or hear and focus on behaviours rather than what lies beneath, a bit like me with my neighbours. Now, of course, we can't meet all the needs of all the people all the time, and we're not meant to. But we do have the ability to restore hope when we treat people with unique significance. And, you know, it's, it strikes me, even those little examples, you know, of G people encountering Jesus. When people encounter the presence of Jesus, everything changes. Even when we have nothing to give, those of us that have chosen to follow Jesus, we carry his presence. And it's a profound thing as we go out and connect and meet with other people and come alongside them in compassion. You know, we have the opportunity not to see significant problems, but significant people. And everyone deserves to know they are loved, seen and celebrated. So who is it for us? You know, who do we know that's maybe lost, that's in a mess, that's gone way off track? who's maybe ill or suffering in some way, or, or people different from us that we just feel uh, a real passion to go and connect with, to reach out with. So it definitely starts with us. And it's clear that we are all called, but there is a cost. It costs Jesus his life. It's messy. You know, as we reach out to people in all different walks of life and come alongside them, it doesn't fit into a neat, a neat box. You know, I've got years of experience of that. It really doesn't. It will impact our emotions as we choose to embrace and hear and see. It's about investing in people, not productivity. And that's tough when we live very driven, fast lives. If we have solutions, and we won't always, in fact, rarely do, it won't be quick. You know, it's about embracing people for the long haul. It may not come naturally, we've got to work at it. You know, it will be painful as we start to see uh, people in the world through the eyes of Jesus. A bit like, um, you know, the transgender guys we met. It was absolutely heartbreaking when we heard their stories and the pain and brokenness they've been through. It kind of made sense of a lot of, of things as we listened to them. But in the process, our character will be forged and shaped, and that's great. And um, there's a guy in our church called um, Mick, and He's like, I don't know what a top policeman is, but he wasn't just a policeman, he was like over-policeman, like a police commissioner or something. A real, like, um, amazing character, great guy. And he retired a few years ago, and he's been um, volunteering at the Arches. And it's been really fascinating just to watch his heart begin to melt as he's been connecting uh, with the people that we do there. So here's his story. So interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got about 300-odd volunteers at the Arches. And um, if you talk to most of them, we find that our lives are impacted incredibly. We, we meet and encounter Jesus when we come alongside other people in, a, in, a, in a, such a profound way. Um, and, and Mick's certainly one of those. But, you know, as we do this stuff, we, we, we do meet Jesus in the people that we come alongside. And there is no greater pleasure to be able to demonstrate his love, but also kind of receive him in the process. So how then should we respond as a church? Well, um, Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher, he said this. These places of worship are not built that you may sit here comfortably. And here's something that shall, pass, shall make you pass away your Sundays with pleasure. A church which does not exist to do good in the slums and dens and kennels of the city is a church that has no reason to justify its existing any longer. 
a church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice and to hold up righteousness is a church that has not the right to be. That's quite hard hitting, isn't it? You know, <laughs> crumbs. And it kind of goes back to that whole, you know, James uh, passage and just kind of like, it is about action. It's about doing something, not just feeling and, you know, you know, at, at Trent, compassion uh, has very much been part of our DNA right from the beginning. You know, we, um, I mean, part of the, the reason Tom and I joined with John and Debbie is when we started to talk about the church and our, our, our desire for what a church would look like, it was all about reaching out, going out, going out of our comfort, our comfort zones uh, and impacting the city in, in some way. But, you know, it started really small. It started by us just serving other people, other people who were visiting prisons, other people who were like doing soup run, and we just wanted to serve faithfully. It was all about us releasing our small groups to say, you know, we'd give them a bit of money each month, like go and bless your communities. And whether that was cleaning stairwells, giving away flowers, renovating, decorating bedrooms, um, sweeping leaves, whatever it was, we just want to go out and be a blessing and demonstrate God's love. And then people would say, why are you doing this? And it's like, we could then have a story to tell. But actually, it's often through small things done with great love that actually is the most powerful thing. I was going to show a DVD, but we ran out of time, so I won't show that. But yeah, next service maybe. But you know, I just want to encourage us all as we just kind of ponder on this this week is that you know we really are all empowered to do this, and we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do this on our own. We can allow Him just to give us creative thoughts and ideas. We can allow Him to um, open and expand our hearts to see and hear, hear what and who He wants us to impact. But we all have a part to play. There's actually no excuse. We need to take our compassionate selves, even if there's only a little bit of compassion, like me with my neighbours. You know, wherever we work, whatever we do in our everyday, ordinary lives, whether, you know, we're students, teachers, cleaners, stay-at-home mums, lawyers, mechanics, whatever it is, introverts, extroverts. You know, and I've watched over the years, as our starting point is compassion. You know, small things with great love, it's a powerful statement, and it represents Jesus well. You know, being a compassionate people, it does start with us. You know, as individuals acknowledging our own brokenness, that we can then move into being authentic and then respond to God's call and to model Jesus and embrace the cost of that. And then we're commissioned, all of us, to be the human face that shows God's love by being an outward-looking, compassionate church that will transform our city.